You've got owls. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for people who remember dial-up. Whoosh! With a clattering, a whirring of wings, and a soft fall of dust, a fourth owl came shooting out of the kitchen fireplace. For God's sake, roared Uncle Vernon, pulling great clumps of hair out of his moustache, something he hadn't been driven to in a long time. I will not have owls here. I will not tolerate this, I tell you. I will not have any more owls in my house. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And I remember dial-up. I also remember dial-up. I would talk to my boyfriend on AOL Instant Messenger for hours and hours and hours after school. And I would totally tie up my family's phone lines. So if something bad had happened, we just never would have known because I would have been aiming. (laughs) I think they just, they finally shut down AOL Instant Messenger, like pretty recently. That's tragic. R.I.P. That was a major part of my adolescent awakening. Yeah, uh, mine too. I think all of ours. <laughs> a very certain, <laughs> like, late millennial experience to be having. We are on a little vacation this week. So we have a mailbag episode to tide you over until we do our next chapters. So you will continue to hear spoilers and plenty of cursing um, on this episode, but we are not discussing particular chapters of Harry Potter. We are reading your lovely letters instead. This week's single adult theme is not responding to email in a timely fashion. <laughs> this podcast that I really like called Reply All, which you guys should all listen to, it's awesome, has this made-up holiday called Email Debt Forgiveness Day, which is the day that you can respond to any email that has been sitting in your inbox for any amount of time. And you just send a link to Email Debt Forgiveness Day and then you just respond as though like no time has passed. And I feel like it's the single greatest gift that podcasters have ever given the human community (laughs) uh it's an excellent idea so forgive our email debts we don't reply individually to all of you but we do read all of your emails um and we are going to share a couple out today so forgive our email debts as we forgive those who email debtors yeah our email debt our email debtors but none of you owe us emails so that's not really valid in this case do you want to kick us off with our first email? yes i do Our first e-owl, as it were, rather. E-owl. All right. This e-owl is from Quibbler Book Club member Amanda. The subject line is, I feel comfortable using wizard jargon in everyday life. So, very good legally blonde reference. Did you not get that? Uh, Sadly, I did not get that. Oh, (laughs) okay. I thought it was a hilarious subject line. That's really good. But I'm now remembering that scene. Right? She's in the pool, right? Yes. Yes. I think, yeah, anyway. Whatever. Hey, friends. Love the pod. You guys are fantastic and hilarious, and I'm so glad you're back because your hiatus was far too long for my liking, although I'm sure much needed and deserved hashtag self-care. Anyways, just finished your most recent podcast discussing the hearing and heard your call for some lawyerly yet completely non-legal advice. FYI, I'm currently sitting at my desk avoiding preparing for a real-life trial while frantically researching the decree for the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery, and I'm pretty sure that's the definition of dedication. (laughs) 
Okay, to the task at hand. First, take everything I say with a grain of flu powder because I'm a super noob criminal defense attorney. Also, I practice in the U.S. and know nothing about the inquisitorial system that the Wizengamot likely followed because Britain. My first impression of this trial when I read it as a kid was, all caps, this is batshit, exclamation point. Now that I practice in real muggle juvenile court, my reaction is more, meh, seems about right. Juvenile court, at least where I practice, has a tendency to be, in a word, banana land. Rules of- <laughs> I'm sorry, I really liked that. Rules of evidence are largely overlooked, even when they shouldn't be. Statutes are ignored, and it's generally a hot mess, with some shining exceptions. But, assuming all of those things did apply and the rules were real, I had a couple thoughts. First, Alex, your inclination that talking about Harry's alleged prior crimes might not be allowed is sort of right. We at the Public Defender's Office would object like crazy and say it's inadmissible, 404B character evidence. Essentially, the rule says that you can't introduce evidence of other crimes or bad acts for the purpose of proving that someone's a bad dude. Evidence can be introduced if it's for another purpose, like if Harry had used the same hover charm like 18 times in a row, it could be used to prove a modus operandi, or something like that. That doesn't seem to be the case here, though. On the other hand, Fudge could just be asking him about those other times because he's trying to impeach Harry and make him look not credible. He's allowed to do that under 608B, but he can't offer up extrinsic evidence to that effect, meaning that he can ask Harry about it, and if Harry admits it, which he does, then he can use it to say, hey, this guy's shady AF. Shady AF? Do you pronounce it AF or AF? I say AF. AF. This guy's shady AF. But if Harry had denied it, he couldn't whip out some paper with Harry's previous conviction on it to prove it up. Make sense? Of course not, because the rules of evidence is unnecessarily confusing. All that aside, it seems like what Fudge is doing here is proving up a prior offense to impose enhanced penalties. This is akin to a DWI second, or something where the state would have to prove that a prior DWI occurred in order to prove that the defendant in order to prove that the defendant did, in fact, commit the crime of DWI second. Essentially, the first offense is part of the second crime for purposes of enhanced penalties. Here, Harry got a warning back in year two about his hover charm violation, and it seems like it's a two-strike system, or maybe three, C, E, G, blowing up his aunt, in order to get to the more enhanced penalties, exp expulsion, wand-breaking. Fudge would have to prove that Harry committed this prior infraction as part of his case-in-chief. What's super messed up about that is there was, all caps, no fucking hearing to convict Harry of that prior alleged offense, even if it was only a warning. So the whole case is bullshit anyways, because due process apparently isn't a thing for juvenile wizards, and everything is insane at the ministry. Also, Dumbledore should be for sure prosecuted for illegal practice of law. <laughs> that was really long. Sorry, I'm a huge law nerd and a huge Harry Potter nerd. Roll them bones, Amanda. That was literally exactly what we asked for. Truly epic. Um, uh, great confluence of nerddom, too. The perfect combination for uh, purposes of the quibbler. Uh, it's really interesting to have specifically heard from someone who works in juvenile justice because it is my understanding that, like, for all of the ways in which the pursuit of a justice for adults is fucked up, it's, like, worse for young people and like taken less seriously. So I don't actually have a ton to add to that. All I can say is that I learned so much and it was fascinating. And I'm glad that we were like a little bit right about a couple of things. 
And now we know a lot more as a community. So thank you so much. Now we have a Quibbler legal consultant. That's amazing. Uh, I'm glad also to see Roald and Bones being embraced we by did the get Quibbler listenership. several emails and all they said were Roald and Bones is funny. <laughs> so I stood corrected. I love being vindicated. All right. Next, we have an email from Quibbler Alyssa, whose subject line is, I have one trillion thoughts about Petunia Dursley. Girl, me too. Hey, friends. I have to say I have binged all 49 main episodes, now 55, plus the economics episode, and I love the podcast. Y'all are doing the Lord's work, haha. Anyway, I felt a lot of your thoughts about Petunia Dursley were really insightful. I just wanted to add my piece because a lot of this I didn't realize until I was an adult and had gone through some of my own shit since I first read this book at 15. As a survivor of an emotionally abusive relationship, my first ever real relationship to boot, I'm so sorry, first of all, Alyssa. That's really unfair and I'm really sorry that you went through that and I'm glad that you are out the other side and out of the relationship. Anyway, um, she continues, Petunia has always struck me as someone in that same sort of situation. Let me explain. Starting at the beginning, I think you hit the nail on the head re her relationship with Lily. She was always really close with her. In book seven, they're thick as thieves until Lily is called away to Hogwarts. There's some obvious jealousy there, of course, especially as Joe makes an allusion to Petunia having written a letter to Dumbledore to see if she could go as well and Dumbledore letting her down gently. This girl does not understand secure attachment. Holy shit. I think she hung on to that resentment and got with a thoroughly muggleish TM guy. But as you said in the episode, he has violent tendencies, even if they aren't directed at his direct kin, and she got together with him when she was in her 20s. She's only a few years older than Lily, who died at 21. My guess is that was her first real relationship, and it was immediately followed by the intense trauma of losing her only sister, and possibly her last remaining relative. I know y'all mentioned Joe saying that James's parents died right before Harry was born, and it seems like maybe Lily and Petunia's did too. That's true, and Marge is um, Vernon's sister, so mm-hmm. we know that she doesn't have any other siblings. She wouldn't have had any other relationships in her life and would have been tied to Vernon via Dudley. And as we all know, it's so, so hard to leave toxic relationships like that, especially when the abuse is emotional, psychological, emotional slash psychological, because it's easy to convince yourself that if your partner isn't hitting you, it isn't really abuse. Hint, it is. Okay, so this wasn't really one trillion thoughts so much as one very long thought about social isolation, fear, and brainwashing, but this was a piece of insight that I didn't have into that character until I was an adult and had been through it. I'm no Petunia apologist, but I feel like I can empathize with her more, which is all to say it explains her behavior, but it doesn't excuse it. Sorry for this fucking novel, but it was too long to tweet. Ha ha. Best Alyssa. Um, not a novel, an incredibly insightful and interesting email that we really appreciated, I think that Petunia um, definitely fits the profile of somebody who has undergone at least an abusive environment and is married to a person who she knows is capable of really extreme abuse and has probably turned that on her at least at times. Yeah, Um, well, he certainly, like, choked Harry physically. Right, he's been physically abusive with Harry. And it does give me more empathy for why she would kind of go along with it and I do think there's also sort of precedence in abusive relationships like this for staying in order to sort of do your best to protect the victim of the abuse even if your best really isn't good enough like Petunia does keep Harry the sort of like baseline kind of safe that Dumbledore asks of her 
she doesn't keep him safe from Vernon, but she doesn't, like, turn him out. Right. Also, like, I know I said this, but I really am sorry that you were in an abusive relationship, and um, I wish for happy and loving and um, peaceful relationships in your future. This next EL is from Josh. It's The subject line is Contrary Thoughts on Neville. Apologies. Hey, guys. I've written in a couple times before. I love the podcast, and I've agreed with most of the things y'all have said in the past, especially when it comes to tearing down beloved HB characters. Uh, what are we here to do if not tear down beloved HB characters? Down with Dumbledore. <laughs> not all the way down with him, but you know. So please allow me to do the same thing right now by throwing a wrench into the adored Neville Longbottom. You two do such a fantastic job of looking beyond the wise Dumbledore, loyal Ron, etc. tropes that I'm a bit surprised you haven't questioned Neville, the on-the-surface fool who has a heart of gold and becomes a hero character. Sure, I like Neville as a person. He is kind and funny and oh-so-pathetic, especially early on. Readers grow attached to him because he is subdued and awkward, like many bookish teens, for sure. This is a fun dude to root for, but a character like Neville is such a run-of-the-mill young adult novel stereotype. When I first read Harry Potter, I'm 24 now, so I grew up with them, I knew that Neville would become a stud. In a series about the heart and love, it just made such boring sense that his initial dorkiness would manifest into something greater, connotated through his annoyingly obvious acts of courage, like at the end of the first book. <laughs> <laughs> Neville is, I'm sorry, an incredibly predictable character. Thanks, JK. Being kind and liberal turned Neville into a brave and sexy person. How original. <laughs> you two said something many episodes back that really stuck with me. HP is a great series because it is not some coming-of-age story about a predictable, gentle, brave, abashed protagonist like so many other forgettable young adult books. Instead, Harry is a brazen, arrogant, temperamental kid who immediately becomes pretty popular... Sure, love and honesty play an integral role in his character, but like most people, Harry has a negativity and hatred inside of him, rightly so. His emotional duality plays a major role in the series' strong connection with its audience. Harry is not some withdrawn, living-in-his-head genius, and this helped his series stick out from the rest. This leads me to my main thesis. I'm about to get English majory on you, so I apologize in advance. Later on in the series, it is revealed that both Harry and Neville were up for the running as Chosen One. This decision to pit Harry against Neville, of all people, is super fucking meta. Their cheeky opposition highlights HP's genius. If, in fact, Neville had been the Chosen One, the series would have followed a more stereotypical young adult plot, one of a dorky character with a heart of gold becoming brave and getting the respect of those around him. Instead, Harry is the Chosen One, and because he is a character so unlike those of the YA fantasies that preceded him, the series presented a protagonist able to strike a new and relatable chord with its readers. Cognizant of this metaphor or not, Rowling's decision to choose Harry over Neville speaks to her choosing the road less traveled, the difficult task of creating an, until then, unusual and realistic fantasy protagonist. If Neville had been the chosen one, his predictable, though lovable character would have led to the series blending in with the many other YA novels of the late 20th century. In the Harry v. Neville chosen one dichotomy, Neville represents all the generic routes the series could have gone. In choosing Harry as chosen one, J.K. found her success. I am not trying to attack Neville here, just the character he represents. I think this idea would make many loyal HP fans angry, but it's important to think critically. Also, I realize there are many arguments against what I said. This is just a fun idea I had. Much love, Jay. So Thanks, Jay. 
Yeah, and I really think that's a good point about the kind of Neville versus Harry chosen one face-off because I agree that Neville would have been the obvious choice in most books like this. Mm -hmm. And especially given Neville's backstory, I mean, Harry's backstory is tragic but complicated. Harry and Neville share the kind of like tragic backstory thing. Both of them are, for all intents and purposes, orphans sent to live with other family members. Neville has a more loving, although also apparently terrifying, family member to grow up with. But they grow into really different boys because of those experiences. And Harry's spikiness and arrogance and complexities do make him I do agree a much more interesting protagonist that being said I think that Neville represents a set of values and strengths that are otherwise lacking in the protagonists of the series and that is a reason why I really appreciate his presence even though I think you're right that there are aspects of Neville that play into kind of boring YA tropes he among other things he like he sticks around and I know that Neville sort of inadvertently becomes the hero at the end of the seventh book but he doesn't like a hero not the hero though one of the heroes right but up until then he doesn't go looking for the main conflict like he stays at school and works to sort of like he he works within the system in a way that I think is really interesting like he kind of becomes a leader of the resistance movement within Hogwarts rather than joining Harry, Ron, and Hermione's kind of like external fight. So yeah, we need we need a hero. Not a hero. We need like a reliable and brave kind of like leader to come into his own at Hogwarts. Yeah, I think narratively that works. Um I do love the idea of the Neville Harry dichotomy as a meta commentary on Rowling's own authorial choices. I just love like texts commenting on themselves within texts. I think that is really cool and much respect for coming at Neville. That's like more quibblery than the quibbler. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God. Come. Like, that is excellence. Kill all of our darlings. <laughs> Always kill our darlings. Um, yeah, that was a great email. Next, we've got one from a quibbler named Chris, and she has written an email titled, Where Do Vanished Objects Go? So you know this is going to be good. Hi, Heather and Alex. This email is in response to a question raised on this week's podcast, Umbridge Over Troubled Water, where you asked where the snails go that the students are vanishing. In the Deathly Hallows chapter, The Sacking of Severus Snape, the Ravenclaw door knocker asks this question of both Amicus Caro and Minerva McGonagall in order to gain access to the common room. Doorknocker. Where do vanished objects go? Amicus replies, I don't know, do I? Shut it. Not terribly helpful. McGonagall's answer is much more satisfactory. Into non-being, she says, which is to say everything. The doorknocker replies, well-reasoned. Ugh, I forgot about that scene. So good. So if they go into non-being, then we can assume they don't have a physical form anymore. But they also go into everything, which means that they still exist. This means they must still exist in some way or another. Particle physics, fuck yes, girl. (laughs) 
particle physics, I think, girl, um, I'm not sure your pronouns. Apologies. Um, particle physics tells us that all fundamental particles which make us and everything else up were created at the same time at the beginning of the universe. This argument has been used to imply that everyone and everything in the universe is the same age, as their fundamental particles were all created at the same time. The principle of conservation of energy tells us that energy is never created or destroyed, only changed from one form to another. Since fundamental particles, quarks, muons, etc. I love that we got an email that has quarks in it. (laughs) Are the smallest things that can exist, they can't be broken down into anything smaller. So let's assume their fundamental particles at least still exist. And they're just floating around the universe, not forming a living or conscious being. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that there is an equal chance that something both exists and doesn't exist. In fact, that it both exists and doesn't exist until we observe it one way or another. I hypothesize that vanished objects exist until they are vanished, at which point they jump to the other possibility of not existing that Heisenberg tells us is possible, and just float around as fundamental particles until they are called back into being. Take the dog that Cedric conjured in Goblet of Bullshit. Oh my god. (laughs) If it didn't exist before Cedric conjured it, according to Heisenberg, there was equal possibility of it existing. Cedric then used transfiguration to call up that other possibility and the dog came into being, having always existed in another plane of existence. One that we just hadn't observed. Then when he vanished it, it went back to having never existed. But its fundamental particles still floated around, carrying the possibility of existence. Hey, they said transfiguration was the hardest subject. I hope this makes some kind of sense. It's been rolling around in my head all day. Much love and quibbles, Chris. And then she sent a follow-up, correction. I may have said Heisenberg when I meant Schrodinger. Both contributed to quantum theory. I hope this doesn't invalidate my theory. I have had a few glasses of Merlot. Love and quibbles, Chris. Excellent. Um... This is like the coolest email. (laughs) I was like reading it and my eyes were getting wider and wider. And I was like, thank God somebody knows about particle physics and has told us where these things go. What a crazy answer from McGonagall. But she would know. Yeah, it seems like McGonagall might actually know science. (laughs) She's also the one that told them about invertebrates. Whoa, the quantum physics of transfiguration. I guess quantum physics are the only thing that could explain it. Absolutely. Right? Like, relativity doesn't cover that shit. I don't know. I don't know enough about relativity to but, be able to answer that. Me neither. Uh, not, that is some, that is some, like, Stephen Hawking, like. Oh, may he rest. He might have been a wizard. Possibly. One of the best images in Prisoner of Azkaban is of the wizard and the leaky cauldron. We posted an Instagram of this, reading A Brief History of Time. Uh, I think it's such a cheeky foreshadowing of the time turner which hawking himself would have had no truck with indeed not (laughs) all right our next email is titled episode 52 relationship stuff hey guys love the podcast and i'm always so excited when a new episode is up thank you just wanted to share my thoughts on something you briefly mentioned right at the end of your most recent episode number well not most recent anymore (laughs) but episode 52 Totally not offended by it, just wanted to share a different point of view. In the last few minutes of the episode, it was brought up how Ginny was the only one who played the field and dated around by finally settling down and getting married. That was a healthy teenage sensibility towards romance, according to Heather, and Ginny got the utmost respect from Alex on that. 
The other characters, by contrast, had a limited amount of dating and romantic physical contact before they themselves settled down, and that felt to be looked down upon and possibly not deserving of any respect. I feel like this is part of a bigger cultural swing toward upholding those who, quote, play the field, unquote, first as being somehow wiser than their less experienced counterparts. In my personal experience, my husband and I had each been in only one serious dating relationship before being with each other, and we have now been married happily for 10 years, not without our difficulties, of course, lol. Now, I'm not saying you guys are anti-high school sweetheart or anything like that, and I'm definitely not saying that those who choose to date around before settling down are the foolish ones. I guess I'm saying it's okay if you've maybe smooched once or kind of dated a person, those are quotes from the episode, before finally settling down with the one. Being with a lot of people, having a, quote, healthy, unquote, amount of whatever one deems to be physical-slash-sexual experience is not itself an indicator of future long-term relationship success, and I just don't feel like I hear that message as loudly as its counterpart, you gotta play the field first, sow your wild oats, etc., etc. Again, totally not bashing you guys or your statements. You can bash our statements all you want. We're often extremely wrong. I don't want this to cause you to feel like you've offended yet another listener with something you said. (laughs) Can only imagine how often you get emails about that. It was just something that made me think about a bigger topic and I wanted to contribute to it. That's what I appreciate about this podcast. We come together with our love of Harry Potter and wind up having larger conversations about the world and the people that inhabit it. If we do that, then the Quibbler is accomplishing its mission. Keep up the great work, guys. Looking forward to the next episode. Best, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. What Lauren is referring to here is I made Ginny an unsung hero for being the only person at Hogwarts who apparently dates around. And I guess it's sort of ironic that that came from me because I've had, without getting into like too much detail, like like two serious relationships in my life, uh, including my current relationship, which is marriage to Heather. To me. Yeah. It's funny when you're just like spouting off about like Harry Potter. I, I, I mostly was using it as a way to make fun of uh, Harry and some of the others, I think. Uh, I was just sort of... I I hadn't really thought about the larger implications of what I was saying there. I actually also was not a play the field type in particular. And Alex and I met when I was 21 um, and started dating pretty soon after that. So we were college sweethearts and we were pretty young when we got together. And we have been together for about nine years, right? And married for two. Mm Mm-hmm. So we are by no means um, Ginny levels of like cool girl experienced. I think the point was more about Ginny just like having stronger and maybe this is what's kind of like unfair about the point is that Ginny I think we were kind of saying has more kind of like interpersonal and like teen skills in general. Like Ginny just seems more capable of like forming relationships and Harry, Ron, and Hermione, well Harry and Ron in particular kind of come across as a little like maladaptive in terms of their ability to like (laughs) form bonds in general and with Harry it's like perfectly understandable because like he's the victim of like a lifetime of abuse but you're totally right that like there's no right way to like find your person. And I think people forget that sex positivity also means choosing not to have sex with lots of different people. Yeah. Like, it cuts both ways. I also think Ginny is probably not, like, having sex with all these people. But I, I, I take your point. In the wide world of Harry Potter slash fiction. Oh, yeah. They all, yeah. Um, <laughs> See Potterotica. 
oh, always see Potterotica, yeah. I think Ginny just comes across in general as more socially adept and skilled, and we used maybe kind of thoughtless way of expressing that. I think what I was reacting to is the dearth of different types of relationships that are reflected in Harry Potter. Like, it seems like everyone marries their high school sweethearts, so... Yeah. I was I was liking some romantic variety, but of course the books can't really focus on the love lives of Harry, Ron, and Hermione and others because then it would be a completely different series. So maybe Rowling just didn't have time to like write in a bunch of different like dating scenarios for Harry because then you'd have not Harry Potter. He's got like his hands full. I also think that a thing that I do like about Ginny is she comes across as really self-confident and like dates people who like her and who she is interested in as opposed to as you all know one of my least favorite relationships in the series which is Ron Myony which is born of like near constant squabbling and a sort of like what feels on Ron's part like just a general lack of other options (laughs) um and maybe that's not fair either but like I just really respect Ginny's social skills in general and I guess we express that in a way that came across as kind of disparaging of experiences that both of us have had which are not dating a ton of people before (laughs) we settle down with someone is that like a Freudian thing on our parts maybe we regret it I don't know I don't know whoa (laughs) that's fucked up let's work through this now on air yep here comes the divorce, you guys. Wouldn't it be sad if there was a Quibbler divorce? I guess we shouldn't put that out into the universe. That'd be terrible. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't feel like divorcing you yet. All right, next one. I have an email. It's just called Umbridge, and it's from Marie. Hi, Heather and Alex. I listened to your most recent episode, and I have some thoughts on Umbridge. In my most recent rereading of Order of the Phoenix last fall, I was thinking about how she is a really extreme example of a woman who has internalized patriarchal power structures to to achieve professional success in a male-dominated field, like politics. The easy comparison to make is Margaret Thatcher, but I think you also see that in a lot of women in positions of power. I'm thinking of the thinks and nasty gal CEOs that were outed in the last few years for pretty awful business practices. The backstory for Umbridge in my head is that she fought her way up through the ministry, probably having to work even harder than most women because she's not conventionally attractive, and she has a lot of pride in the fact that she learned how to play the game. When we meet her, she's Fudge's senior undersecretary, and Harry's truth directly threatens Fudge's job, and by extension her own. So she is threatened by that and gets pretty extreme. But I have to imagine that she used her blood quill on her employees in the ministry when they weren't staying in line or doing the proper doing things the proper way because she would resent anyone who didn't feel like they had to travel the same long, hard road that she did in her career. She very much believes in the establishment because she had to to get to where she is. I mean, she's also obviously pretty bigoted and mean-spirited in addition to all that, but for me, thinking of her in that way complicated her character in a way I liked. I agree that she is just as much of a compelling villain as Voldemort, and I wish she got as much backstory as he does in the series. I really liked this take. It's very, like, on brand for the Quibbler. (laughs) Because I do think that there are factors in, um, I think Margaret Thatcher is a really good example, in a woman rising to the top that, like, in order to really do that, 
you have to be ruthless in a way that maybe men don't necessarily have to be. So we actually, we got, I'm not going to read the whole thing because most of it is just from Pottermore, but we got other emails about Umbridge kind of talking about her backstory and um, a listener named Romarique, which by the way, that's a beautiful name, wrote to us to share um, that Pottermore actually has a fascinating bio of Dolores Umbridge um, that it's not canon, but if you're curious, I really would go read. Most notably, writes Romarique, she herself is a half-breed and has a squib baby brother whose name is unknown and has no contact with him or her muggle mother and persuaded her father to disappear from public view to maintain her image as a pureblood. Taking credit for other people's work, she climbed up fast within the Ministry of Magic and saw the opportunity to gain even more power um, in the Dumbledore-Fudge feud. And then she shares um, the whole bio, which is really fascinating, and she is a truly sadistic and terrifying woman. And she says, P.S. The Punishment Quill was of her own invention, which creeps me the F out. Uh. So if you're interested, there are Dolores backstories out there. But I really appreciated this email about the challenges of being a woman in power and how that could really warp your um, sensibilities. That still tracks pretty well with uh, Marie's thesis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And she you have to sort of like a lot of times as a woman looking for power you kind of have to find a wedge between two men to like right leverage what's the it's the difficulty for any one from a marginalized group in sort of achieving power within the traditional like power structures right you have to make a choice do i like embrace this bad system and like take it to 200 percent which usually entails like making some pretty ethically complicated or just outright wrong decisions or you do or do you do the thing that cuts against your own immediate self-interest which is to like fight the power yeah and umbridge is a bad actor to begin with but certainly she's a bad actor whose trajectory was probably influenced by being a woman seeking power in what remains despite the fact that it has fucking magic a patriarchal society so I think that's really interesting. And clearly, and, you know, rolling sort of retconned other ways, Umbridge was, like, lower status to kind of give her motivations for what she does. Right, such as being um, half muggle-born. We have one more email um, that's just a really interesting quibble that I think about a lot. And it is from Allison, and the subject line is, How many students are at Hogwarts? Hi, Alex and Heather. Just sitting here watching the first movie again and had a thought. In the scene where all the new Gryffindor first years follow Percy up the stairs to the dormitories, there are a lot of first years there. But as far as we know, Harry lives in a room with five boys. Ron, Neville, Dean, Seamus, and himself. And we really only know of three Gryffindor girls in Harry's ear. Hermione, Lavender, and Pravati. So who are all these kids in this scene? I know the movies take a lot of liberties, but how many kids are we supposed to believe live in this GD castle? Perhaps we are just meant to believe there are more students than we see as the reader or watcher. Then I got to thinking about how many kids could really be in the school at once. Theoretically, if each new year brings only about 8 to 10 new kids per house, at max there could be only 280 kids at the school, right? I'm curious what you guys think about the true population of Hogwarts. Oh, sorry. It's, it, she goes by Allie, not Allison. Okay. So thank you, Allie. There are like whole Reddit threads like dedicated to this question, I feel like. I haven't like gotten into the like math, but people have theories. 
I haven't dug like too deeply into the theories, but I always assume that there were just a bunch of other students that are just sort of off stage because you know she talks about people like whispering and in the hallways. Uh, she describes a sea of students at the qu- at the Quidditch matches. The, you know, the dining hall is really big, but the common room isn't that big. You're right. So it's really unclear. I was thinking, okay, so say there are like a dozen students per house per year, which is about what it looks like um, based on how many characters we like know of from each year. Even then, you have like a population of less than 350 students, which is literally a tenth the size of my high school. Like that's a tiny school. And we're meant to believe that this is the only wizarding school in the UK. So then that, for me, that begs the question of like, how big is the wizarding population? So Rowling herself has said in interviews that there are about a thousand students at Hogwarts. But a lot of people- That's insane. A lot of people are, a lot of people have pointed out that that doesn't make much sense given that there's seven years. There's multiple class times for people in the same year. You know, Hermione is not in all the same classes as Harry and Ron. Wait, what doesn't make sense? I don't understand. There's a thousand kids and that's too big or too small? Too Way too small. But based on what we can see, we can see about a third of that. Wait, hold on. So that would be 1,000 students divided by... Seven what? years. Seven years. Divided by four houses. So that's 142 students divided per year. Four. Divided by four. Is about 35 students per year. Per year per house. Per year per house. Yeah, that doesn't make sense either because... Although they always seem to have their classes with every member of... Because it's like... It's not with every member of their house because not everybody takes the same classes. I know, but like it's every member of their house that... Like it's not like there's two different Gryffindor care of magical creatures periods. Yeah. So like every member of their house... So their core subjects, the ones they're required to take, Mm -hmm. every member of each... Okay, all 35... Which is crazy also because they sometimes they share lessons, which means all of a sudden Hagrid has 70 people in care of magical creatures. That doesn't make any sense either. (laughs) I think it's probably, I would guess that it's about half that size. Well, so you think it's much smaller than what Rowling says. You think it's about like 500 students at Hogwarts. I think it's less than 500. Huh. Because like. I would have thought it'd be bigger, but maybe I mean, it looks bigger and she portrays it as bigger, but the logistics of it being bigger don't make a ton of sense because Like, you know, they have joint classes with multiple other houses several times a day. And, like, the entirety of Gryffindor, the entirety of Gryffindor, like, fifth year is in the, like, herbology class that they share with the Hufflepuffs. Which would be, like, 70 kids. Which would be 70 kids, which is crazy. There's no way she's teaching that many kids at the same time. Or Hogwarts just, or class sizes at Hogwarts are just out of control. But, like, They need to hire more teachers. Well, that's the other thing. There's one teacher per subject. Right. So across you're handling, the whole school. Yeah, so McGonagall is handling seven periods. Yeah. Hogwarts teachers are overworked. How do, how, if if it's anywhere near that size. I mean, think about like your how, high school. Like how many English teachers were there? For lots. Like, so yeah, they're teaching all day every day. Like they have every single period of full class. And they only have one lunch period, which doesn't make sense. Like, they all have lunch at the same time, which uh, means it must be much smaller. What the fuck? I guess they can all fit in the dining hall at the same time, but like... Thou- yeah, that, yeah, I guess, yeah. Capacity 1,000? 
That's a huge, That's a big dining huge hall. room. And it's, it does not look that big in the movies. Okay. So I thought it would be like, I guess a thousand is pretty big. I think a thousand seems huge. I bet it's a third that size. How many size. people went to your high school? So currently, not when I was in high school, and I think it was a little bit bigger when I was in high school. Currently, my high school has 2,667 students and 135 teachers. How many teachers does Hogwarts have? All of the Hogwarts teachers can fit at one front table. If there's a thousand <laughs> students and like a dozen teachers, that's an insane ratio. That doesn't make any sense at all. Like even if if North was about the size of Hogwarts, the teaching staff would still be like more than 60. Wow. So regardless of the size of this school, like Hogwarts teachers seem vastly overworked. Are they using time turners? I mean, maybe. They have to be doing something like that. Otherwise, there's no way they could get all of these kids into the right classes. We do need education reform at Hogwarts. This is a crazy, this, yeah. The population of Hogwarts is a total mystery, and it could be anything between, like, yeah. 300 and, like, 3,000. A cursory Google search shows that this is a raging debate. So, man, we yeah. could probably, like, devote a whole episode to just working this out. Yeah, so thanks for that email. It's a really good <laughs> question, and I think the answer is, much like the economics of Hogwarts, whatever answer you come up with doesn't make a ton of sense because it's not all that well thought out. I just assumed it was a ton because of the way she describes the Quidditch stands. Or, like, how many people were there um, at the Triwizard Tournament. Right. Not every wizard must go to Hogwarts. I mean, or there's not that many wizards. Right, a really small population. Like an incredibly small minority population. But the population is growing because there are muggle-borns and yeah. like, intermarriage. Um, And also, okay, so like I said, my high school had about 3,000 people, and that was only four grades. So like seven grades, I mean, whatever. It's, I have no idea how big Hogwarts oh. is. A thousand people does not make sense. This is ridiculous. Like, based on the teaching staff, based on the size of the accommodations, like, there's one dorm room. And one janitor. Oh my god, poor Filch. Well, and the, the house elves are, like, actually the custodial staff. Yeah, why do they even have a janitor if they have house elves? Well, he's, like, the caretaker. Yeah, I guess he, that's like, true. Plus, they have a cat. Right. To do chores. I don't know. Uh, Doesn't make sense. Wow. Thank you for that email. I'm going to be thinking about this all week. Dumbledore should pitch in on lessons. Yeah, Dumbledore doesn't even teach. Dumbledore just hangs out and talks to his paintings. <laughs> but, but whatever. All right. Well, this was a very spirited episode. You guys wrote us awesome, awesome emails, and we deeply appreciate it. Keep Please them coming. Absolutely yeah. keep you. sending them. <laughs> we want to hear your wildest quibbles, theories, uh... Etc. Etc. Never worry that they're too long. We will read it. Which beloved character should our readers take down next? Oh man, Luna! Send us your counterintuitive Luna takes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who do you think? Um. Rather than unsung heroes, let's do who's who's due for a takedown. Maybe McGonagall. That's a good one. McGonagall. I don't think we've ever said a bad word about McGonagall. If you want to send us some of your own quibbles, such as your takedowns of these beloved characters, you can email us at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at quibblerpodcast. The audiobook clips that you heard at the top of this episode are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And uh, next week, we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming. We will be reading 
The Eye of the Serpent, and St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. So get excited. We are going to talk about wizarding healthcare. Thanks, amigos. I feel comfortable using legal jargon in everyday life. I object.